Hear God's word to you this morning. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That ends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. One of the things we have to realize when we come to the scriptures, when we come to the word of God, the Bible, is that the Bible didn't fall from heaven. It didn't just come down like an encyclopedia, like a topical A to Z of theology. It actually has a context. And in the scriptures, we actually, the scriptures are actually a library of books. There are 66 of them. And the one in particular that we're looking at is an, is an epistle. It's a letter by an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means someone that Jesus handpicked and sent out to represent him as an ambassador. He's a church planner. He's an apostle. And he and his fellow missionaries planted this church in Thessalonica, in Greece. And so this church was a, was a model church. If you, we, if you were with us, you'd know that from as we examined 1 Thessalonians. We saw it was a model church. It has some issues, like every church does. But in the main, Paul said, I, I go around boasting about, the other, boasting about you to all the other churches. Um, and there are certain things about them that we'll see that he boasted about. So what we want to see, though, is that this comes, these words come in a context. And so if you look at the text, I'm going to help you in your Bible study. You'll notice he opens up his prayer by saying something very important. He says, with this in mind. Now, when Paul says, with this in mind, or for this reason, or therefore, you follow me? That means you've got to go back a little bit and see what, with what in mind. What's he talking about? What does he have in mind when he goes to pray this particular prayer for these particular people? Because here's here's the thing that actually gets me jazzed up. What gets me jazzed up is when we understand what the word of God meant to the Thessalonican Christians over 2,000 years ago, then we can understand, guess what? What it means for us today. Isn't that awesome? When we understand in its context, then I could say, this is so cool, as a preacher, I know I could say, thus saith the Lord, because we kept it in its context. That's a good feeling, to know that I came to church this morning, and I didn't hear a man's opinion. What did I hear? I heard God's voice. And that's exciting, but it's also what? Deeply convicting, because we know that we got to go out and we got to respond to it, right? In faith, we hope. So we're just going to take a very brief look at what he had in mind before he prayed this prayer. And so clearly he's referring to verses 3 to 10. Now, I preached on it at length a few weeks ago, so don't worry. I'm not going to give you a detailed exposition of it this morning. But we do need a very succinct summary in order to grasp the import and the application of his prayer for them. So to put it as succinctly as I know how, and I kept whittling it down and whittling it down, It's this, Paul's already thanked God for their growth in three things, faith, hope, and love. He's already said, your faith is growing, your love for one for another is growing, and your perseverance in the midst of suffering. 
is just a model to the other churches of Christ Jesus. And he boasts about their perseverance in, in all the, that they were suffering. So here's the, the, the thing we have to see. The fact that they persevered and they continued to believe even in the midst of great suffering and persecution for Christ's name was clear evidence, Paul says, to him and his fellow gospel workers that they were the real deal. That they had truly received the real grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through the real gospel and that God was at work in their midst. Talk about an incredible encouragement. Imagine if Paul writes, writes to the church that meets in Atlantic City called New City Fellowship. And he says, I could tell you're the real deal. God is in your midst. And he says this, so much so, he says that these things are evidence that you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He says, I can see now, when, when Jesus comes, you're going to be counted worthy to be on his team. Because you suffered for the name. You took it. And when he was in his humiliation, as it were, you took his humiliation. You said, I'm with him. You know, I remember being at a presbytery meeting. And at a presbytery meeting, you get grilled about your theology. It has to fall in line. And, and you have to tell, like, if you have a few little scruples with the Westminster Confession, you have to say where, okay, well, I don't 100% agree with this one thing. I want to let my presbytery know. And then they have to decide whether that's something serious or, ah, it's a minor thing, right? So I remember I gave one of my scruples, and I only had, like, two small ones. And there was one gentleman who was making a big deal about it. And I had already been at other presbyteries, and it wasn't a big problem. And he basically challenged me. He goes, does anybody else teach this? And it was silent, and I thought, Ooh. And one pastor goes, I do. And I was like, I can't believe he stood up for me. And then the second one said, I do. And literally, I, I was just about crying because someone stood up for me. And what, what Paul is saying is when, when Jesus wasn't popular, when you took a beating for it, you still believed you're going to be counted worthy. Now, this might not be the perfect analogy, but I couldn't help but think of it. You know those stories, that they're, they're rampant. You, you, I've seen them in a million TV shows. But it's a story of there's this far-off country. It's always this far-off country, and they make up the name, where the guy's a prince. Right? You already know where I'm going with this? And he moves, of all places, to the Midwest of the United States. He goes to some podunk town, and, and I don't know why carpenters get a bad rap. My dad was a mason. I, I understand what the big deal is. But so he becomes like a lowly carpenter, blue-collar guy, humbly working at a job, and he meets a nice, beautiful woman. You know where this is going. But he hides his identity. So as far as she knows, he's just a humble tradesman. And of course, you know as the story goes, they fall in love. They fall in love. They get ready to get... He, he proposes. Everything's great. But then, of course, he has this little secret he's got to tell her. You know the story? And then he says, oh, one little thing I forgot to tell you. I'm a prince, and I'm really rich, and I have a kingdom. And of course, what is she first, what's her first reaction? You lied to me. Yeah, you lied to me. Why didn't you tell me? And then, of course, as it goes, this is what he says, but he goes, put yourself in my position. If I would have let you know who I was, or, you know, because he didn't know her from Adam when he first met her, how many women would have said, oh yeah, I'm in love with you. 
Oh yeah, I'll be with you because they want what? The riches. But he, he, he tells her this, of course, in these stories. But you love me when I would, I would say something a little, I'd say when I didn't have a pot to, you know, follow me. You, when it was nothing but love, you were with me. So now what? Now I know you really love me. You with me? And what's happening in Thessalonica is Paul is saying, I know you really believe. Because there was no worldly advantage for you coming coming out as a believer. And that's powerful. So the Thessalonians were no health and wealth type Christians. They, pierced, they persevered in faith, hope, and love, even though it, though it brought them persecution and suffering. And we see this could only be the work of the grace of God in them. Because by nature, we're all what? Sinful and selfish and self-serving. That's the first thing Paul has in mind when he begins to pray for them, and it's important to keep that in mind. There's only one other thing. The second thing is found in verses 6 to 10, and I'm going to summarize it for you. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to punish those who do not obey the gospel of God. And notice what's going to happen, and this is the, one of the most chilling things in all the Bible. He's going to shut them out from the presence of the Lord. If you want a good impetus on sharing the gospel, this is it, friends. Those who don't know Jesus, as politically incorrect as it might be, they're going to be shut out. It's a serious deal. It's going to be a day of terror on that day. But on the other hand, when he comes back, he will judge those who do not obey the gospel, but he will do what? He will bring relief and salvation and deliverance to all who have what? Longed for his appearing. Amen. You know, when your heart, you're like, how long, Lord Jesus? How long injustice? How long suffering? How long are those people going to flout you to your face and you ain't going to do nothing? And Paul says, tranquilo, non ti preoccupare. In other words, don't worry. The day is coming. And you know what? That day when he brings deliverance, the, the beautiful good news here is he says it includes you to the Thessalonians because you received our testimony. So, he, so Paul, that's what he has in mind when he brings this prayer for them, when he says this, this prayer for them. And what we need to see is something really interesting. He already said they will be found worthy of the kingdom when Jesus comes again. But then his prayer, notice what his prayer is. I pray that you will be what? Worthy of the calling you receive. So now if you're really a student of the text, you're going to say, well, why would he pray for something that he already said is going to happen? You following me? Yeah. Hey, guess what? We're going to go into some deep waters this morning. You know, like my wife and I went in some waters. They weren't deep, but we still saw the shark fin. Well, guess what? You go in deep water. They're there. You just don't see them. So we're going to go deep this morning. This is what we're going to see. Here's the main message. It's a long one, so I may repeat it. Since their perseverance in faith, hope, and love amid suffering is evidence that they will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes back to punish those who don't obey the gospel and vindicate those who do, Paul prays that God will see them through to the end. That's what we're going to see this morning. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? 
I'm going to repeat it one more time. Since their perseverance and faith, hope, and love amid suffering is evidence that they will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes back to punish those who don't obey the gospel and vindicate those who do, Paul prays that God will see them through to the end. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see the content of Paul's prayer. We've got to look at what he actually prays. We're going to see the reason for Paul's prayer, what the main goal is. And then we're going to see the power behind Paul's prayer, how these things will most certainly be accomplished. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's take a look at the first one, which will take up the lion's share of our time, the content of Paul's prayer. Look at me, if you would, again at verse 10. With this in mind, Paul says, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. So the first question I already mentioned that comes to our mind is why Paul would pray for something that he said already is going to happen and namely that God would, call, would count them worthy of his calling. And as I pondered this, the Lord... I believe the Lord brought to my mind, obviously, because as you get older, you start forgetting stuff. And I think the Lord helped me see this. Remember the Lord's Prayer? You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the, what's the next petition? Thy kingdom come. So let's just stop for a minute. Why would Jesus tell us to pray thy kingdom come when he knows full well his kingdom's coming? Because i got news for you. The devil and all of hell can't stop God's kingdom from coming. Amen. I was waiting for that. <laughs> you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against God's church, Jesus' church. So the question is not just about this text. The question is, why would God have us pray for something he already says he's going to accomplish? You understand the question? It's an important one. Well, answer number one, there are a number of answers, but I'm going to stick to the number one answer. And that's this. And I want you to, to understand how profound this is. Because God has chosen to use our prayers to further his eternal purposes. Listen. The God who ordained the ends also ordained what? The means. And one of the incredible things that should literally blow your mind if you're a child of God is that God chooses to use your prayers, as feeble as they sometimes seem, to further his eternal kingdom purposes. God says, now that you're saved, you know, it almost brought me to tears. Um, Lee, Lee was just sharing with me some, some of the stuff he was going through. Forgive me if I'm using you as an illustration, brother. But um, it's a good thing. And, and he said, I'm usable because folks had made him feel that he wasn't usable. And the Bible says, when you come to know Jesus, you're usable. No matter how humble, no matter how weak, no matter how faltering. And one of the primary ways God uses us is when we pray. Listen, prayer, uh, uh, Eric Alexander, a Scottish brother, um, he says, and I agree with him 100%, prayer is not preparation for the battle. It is the battle. That's where the power of God comes down. Paul knew this. And so he prays as a willing participant in the kingdom program of God. He prays and he beseeches God. Listen, 
He beseeches God to do what only God can do, and that's count us worthy. Because I want to tell you something. In and of ourselves, we're not worthy, and we can't make ourselves worthy. But God can. And this is a prayer. This isn't an exhortation. Make yourself worthy. We can't do it. This isn't a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Good luck with that. This isn't a Nike commercial. Just do it. You can. So, pray, so God says, I mean, so Paul says, God, please do it. I pray that you'll do it for them. Bring your full salvation to bear on them, past, present, and future. Calvin says it this way. Um, I have two quotes from him this morning. Um, it's just, they're just too good to pass up. He says, Paul does not ascribe merely the beginning of our salvation to the grace of God, but every part of it. This refutes the sophists that the grace of God, it is true, precedes our own action, but that this grace is assisted by our subsequent good works. In the whole course of our salvation, however, Paul sees nothing but the pure grace of God. In other words, I'll speak in modern English because um, Calvin actually spoke French and then they translated it into like old English. But the main point is this. We don't begin by the grace of God and then by our own works complete our salvation. From beginning to end, it's grace, grace, grace. Can I get a witness? Amen. So here's the important thing I want you to see. Far from making us flippant, or lax in praying for God to do what he promised to do in his word, knowing that he will actually do what he says he's going to do, should give us incredible incentive to pray like mad, since we know our prayers are not in vain, and we're on the winning side. Amen. See, the problem, if I told my son to do something, he says, well, I already know what's going to happen, and he's not going to do it, would I be happy with my son? No. The fact that God already told us, listen, brothers and sisters, the book of Revelation, the main point, I've told you this before, is one thing. Jesus wins. Amen. Since you know Jesus wins, you can get on your knees and you know it's not in vain. See, if I was like, oh, I don't know if you're going to do it, God. I don't know if it's going to work out in the end. I don't know. That would, I would lose incentive to pray. Amen? But the fact that I know God is sovereign and God will accomplish his will, and he says, come on, Sant, you're on my team. Get in the game. Get off the bench. You're a starter. There are no bench warmers in the kingdom. Get up. And don't worry if other people see you as worthy. I say you're worthy. You're clothed in the righteousness of my son. And more and more every day, I want you to start actually looking like Okay, this is wonderful what uh, D.A. Carson says. He says this, Paul prays that Christians might become worthy of all that it means to be a Christian, of all that it means to be a child of the living God, of all that it means to be worthy of the love that brought Jesus to the cross. Hallelujah. That's my prayer for you, and please, brothers and sisters, may that be your prayer for me. Now we're going to look at the next thing Paul says, the second part of the prayer, content-wise. Paul adds, and by his power, by God's power, that he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. To me, this is my favorite part of the text that literally transforms my way of thinking. 
Isn't that cool when you come to a part of the Word of God that's, that says to you, Santa, you've been thinking wrong. I want you to think the right way about this. And listen, this will be revolutionary if you grasp this. And this is what God is saying, what, what Paul is saying. He says this. He doesn't pray that God would give them signs, listen, or specific instructions on which good works to engage in, but rather that God by his power would fulfill every good purpose of theirs and every act prompted by their faith. Let me put it this way. All right. Sometimes I've heard my brothers and sisters say this. When I was younger in the Lord, I, I myself probably said this or something like this. Well, did you get a word from God about that? About helping that person? Oh, did God give you a sign that you need to go to back Maryland? You with me? And that actually, or, or hey, did God tell you to go help that lonely widow? But this verse shows us that that kind of thinking is completely wrong-headed. It's wrong-headed. Paul prays that God by his power may fulfill every good purpose of theirs, every act of their faith. In other words, listen. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, guess what happens? Your values are completely transformed, right? Your vision is transformed. Your, the very purpose of your life, the trajectory of your life is changed. So now you begin to think like God thinks. You begin to set different goals in your life than the ones you used to have, which for me, namely, was glorify myself. That's no longer the main purpose of my life. Now the purpose of my life is what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May Jesus be glorified. Amen. And when that happens, God begins to work in, in the believer's hearts so that we want to do naturally the things that are good and holy and right and helpful to our Father and our God. Amen. So one more quote from D.A. Carson. He puts it this way. This is what happens once we come to know Jesus. He says, we will start asking ourselves these questions. I wonder how I could witness to my neighbor. I wonder if I can get a Bible study going in this neighborhood. I must really sort out how I can help that rather destitute old lady down the street who has just lost her husband and who doesn't seem to have any friends. I wonder what would be involved in trying to befriend the high school kids on my block. I wonder what I could do to welcome visitors coming into our church. Perhaps the local chapter of Prison Fellowship could use me in some way. You see the difference? I didn't, we didn't see a vision that, that was over back Maryland that said, oh, come here. We didn't see a, 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 a sign that was over Busby like the bat, the bat, you know, the bat signal. We didn't get that. But you know what we knew? We knew that there were young people that needed to hear about Jesus. We knew that there were families that needed to see the gospel working in their lives and bringing reconciliation. Amen. And we went. And if you have folks, you know that there are widows among you, around your house, in your church, that they need ministering to, they need a vision, you don't need a call. That's, you should have that purpose in your heart. And what, is, what does Paul do? He does the opposite of what we were talking about before with the sign thing or the word thing. He says, I pray that God would fulfill every good purpose of what? Of yours. You have a new heart, right? Every act prompted by your faith. You go. Go and make disciples. It doesn't say wait. It says go. 
Just go do it. Now notice, ultimately, the reason why Paul is praying this is because, as I mentioned before, unless the Lord builds the house, the labor is labor in vain. So what Paul is saying, I pray that God would fulfill all those good purposes, all those wonderful things for the kingdom that you desire now to do. I pray that God would breathe his fresh power and air through the Holy Spirit in your life and bless it abundantly. There's enough evil in the world, amen? amen. There's enough selfishness. There's enough people serving their own kingdom. So when Paul says, ah, here are God's people, they're looking out after God's things in the business of the Father, I pray that God would bless it. Now listen, two huge things here that this prayer rules out for us. The first is, on the one hand, it rules out all self-confidence or self-reliance in our own power to accomplish anything good. That's ruled out of hand because we see here Paul is saying that God must use, uh, bring his power into bear. Amen? Amen? But it also rules out any quietism. You know what quietism is? Quietism is let go and let God. You know, God's going to do it anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in God's sovereignty. I'm reformed. But it's a misuse of reformed theology if you do what that one gentleman said to, to William Carey who wanted to go bring the gospel to India. You remember what happened? One, one reformed gentleman stood up and said, just relax. If God wants to convert the heathen, he'll convert the heathen without you. Guess what? That man was 100% wrong. Because God has chosen not to convert the heathen without you and me. Amen. Not because he can't. <laughs> Ain't nothing but a thing for him. <laughs> but because he loves his people and he wants to include them in. On his, amen. On his kingdom purposes. We read it earlier, Philippians 2.12, just in case. You're wrestling with this. Therefore, my dear friends, of you as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Our working doesn't negate the necessity for God's working, but also God's working does not negate the necessity of our working. Paul preached the gospel fervently to these people. God converted them, not Paul. Paul prayed fervently. God's the one who answers the prayer. One more cross-reference because this is super important. Colossians 1.28, Paul says this, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And then verse 29, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. How do you know God is working in you? You work. How do you know you've got God's energy upon you? You are energized. Like the, you know, the energizer bunny. God could convert people directly. He could send angels to minister to that elderly woman. He's quite capable of doing it by himself. But here's the amazing thing. As a general rule, he has chosen not to do it without us. You know what's really cool? He is not only committed simply to working through us or even in us, but here's the really neat thing about this passage. He wants to work this is, think about this, with us. 
He wants us to be by his side. Isn't that incredible? I think it's incredible. So in other words, it's a family affair. Come together and work. He wants us to enjoy being a part of extending his kingdom's reign in Christ. And that's the, the last two points. I told you they'd be short. And that's where these things come in. Look at the reason for Paul's prayer. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Listen, it's his great desire, the apostle, to see Jesus get the glory for their acts of faith. Right? That God makes effectual. Any good that we do is from the good desires that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And any good we accomplish is due to the power that God gives us in order to bless our acts of faith to make them effectual. So then we say, like in, in Isaiah, we say, all that we have accomplished, what? You have done for us. Isn't that interesting? All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Amen. And listen, what joy it brings a redeemed soul to see Jesus glorified. And if you want a little, I was thinking, how do I explain this? Well, I thought of one. Now me, I, I, like, I like electric guitar. I love watching guys shred it up. But not just shred, but do it with melody, do it with feel. You know, they got to have all the right package. So a guy like Phil Kagey, for instance, when he is in the pocket, I'm like close to heaven, musically speaking. And, and when everybody's going, yeah, yeah, do it. And I'm like, yeah, you see how good he is too. You see? And I get so, when I talk to somebody and they go, oh, that Kagey's wonderful. I'm like, oh, you're on Team Kagey. That's awesome. Now, maybe music isn't your thing. Maybe it's basketball. Maybe when you watch that guy take that ball to the basket with grace and slam, and, you, and, and you, you've seen people go crazy in, in basketball games, right? Or football games. How much more should we be excited when Jesus, the one who purchased our redemption, gets the glory due his name? Amen. When, people, when we see people going, bowing down, yes, Lord Jesus, that's the goal of my life, should be, to see Jesus get that kind of glory. And that's why Paul's praying that, that he, I want God to bless your acts of faith so that Jesus would be glorified in you. Amen. But then there's the surprise of the text. Because then he says, and you will be glorified in him. <laughs> how do I explain that one? Well, I'll tell you how. I'm also a Giants fan. I know, boo, boo, a lot of you people like the Eagles. Too bad. I'm a Giants fan. And for many, many years, up to the late 80s, mid-80s, we stunk. But I'll tell you what, I still wore the big blue. I didn't care if we stunk. I'm a die-in-the-wool Giants fan. So when we beat the Patriots, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we did it before you Eagles did. And twice, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> when we did that, I had the Giants jersey in. Guess what? On, I'm a part of the Giants. You understand? I'm glorified with the Giants because I'm like that's because people are like, oh, your team did this, your team did that. Now look, do I own the team? Did I help the team win? No. But guess what? I got the glory. <laughs> you understand? It's not a perfect analogy, but the point is, when Jesus is glorified, His people are glorified in Him too, because we're on Team Jesus. Because we wore the, the jersey of the cross of Christ, as it were, and because we were spit on, we were despised, we were not appreciated in this world, which is Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. 
That's quite all right, because when Jesus is glorified, when he comes back, guess what? Then the world's going to know being on Team Jesus was an important thing. Amen? Amen. And the last thing is the power. I told you it would be a short point. The last thing is the power behind Paul's prayer. And look at what he says, how he closes it off. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott puts it this way, a British expositor who's now with Jesus. As always, grace and glory go together. Glory is the end. Grace is the means to it. There can be no glory without grace. Without God's unmerited favor, it ain't going to happen. From first to last, it's all about God's grace. Paul knows that apart from the grace of the Father and the Son, there will be no good purposes flowing out of sinful, selfish people like you and me. He knows apart from the grace of God, there's no heart's going to be changed. No widow's going to be helped and encouraged. And he knows that apart from the grace of God, Jesus sure isn't going to get the glory out of your and my pathetic life. It's solely by the grace of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the awesome thing is this. This is the great encouragement we have as we pray kingdom-centered prayers as Paul did, we know that the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. So I'm actually going to close with this. I know you've been waiting, but I'm going to close with this. There was a man, uh, this is a true story, He's, he was pastoring two churches uh, because there was a shortage of pastors in his denomination. And they were pretty far apart. It was back in the day. And it was hard um, to get to both of them equally. And something happened where he was prevented from getting to the one congregation for a while. And so he says he prayed more fervently for the congregation he couldn't see personally. Makes sense, right? But here's the interesting thing. That congregation flourished more <laughs> than the one that he actually was there for. And I think that's the whole point, brother. The whole point is that we pray because we know it's not about our praying because prayer is actually us admitting we can do nothing. When we pray, God gets the glory because we see he can do only what he can do. And that is change lives, further his kingdom's purpose, and Believe it or not, get glory through your imperfect, humble little life. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that you don't leave us guessing and looking for signs and wondering, oh Lord, what's next? But that all around us, there are good works that are just waiting for us to walk into. The lonely widow, the poor orphan, the rich young ruler who doesn't know his need. Father, there are so many right in our midst. And we pray, Lord, that indeed, that you would fulfill every good purpose of ours, that you, in your power, would fulfill every act that's prompted by our faith in Christ. And it's our hope, Lord Jesus, indeed, that when you return, we will be counted worthy of the name Christian. By your grace alone, and to you be the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.